Welcome to Eternal Life. Seven questions that every intelligent skeptic should ask about Jesus of Nazareth. This is a special free podcast series that is created for anyone who genuinely seeks truth, but who sometimes struggles to believe in some of the miraculous and supernatural elements of the Christian faith. This is a safe place where you can belong without having to believe, as we aim to objectively explore the logical, historical, and academic facts and circumstances that surround the life of Jesus, whom many call Christ. My name is Rory Vaden, and I'm not a pastor or leader of any religious organization. I'm actually a researcher, a New York Times bestselling author, and a Hall of Fame business speaker who has spent a lifetime wrestling with these very questions in my own personal life. I've simply decided to share my findings here so that if I should die before my kids become old enough to understand this, that my two young sons would have documentation for the rational reasons why daddy has come to believe in miracles, a resurrection, heaven, and the story of Jesus as Messiah. I'm glad you're here. Let's explore the evidence. What do we really know about heaven? That's what we've been talking about. And we've been talking about what I think are three of the most common misconceptions that people have about heaven and more specifically about eternal life and looking to what the Bible points out as the truth for what we can learn and know about what is to come. And now we know that the first misconception people have is where is heaven? Heaven, as we think about it, like eternal life is not in heaven. Heaven is intermediate. Heaven is temporary. It's the holding zone where people go until Jesus returns and basically cleans up and gets rid of all the evil on earth, at which point everyone will come back down. All the believers will come back down and that eternity actually takes place on the new earth. And so we've looked at all of those Bible verses that say heaven is not harps and harps and clouds and golden gates. What heaven is really about is experiencing life right here on, on the earth. All of the majestic beauty of this world, the best parts about it is everything that we're going to get to explore and that there's actually a very clear picture of eternal life that we can know because it's what we live every day, except minus the brokenness, the pain, the sorrow, the shame. And then the second misconception that even often longstanding Christians don't understand about heaven or more specifically eternal life and where eternity takes place is what will heaven be like? And again, it's not what you see in the movies of floating on clouds and singing worship songs all day, although worship is probably a part of it because we know that the things that God has given us that give us joy here on this earth are all going to be preserved. How do we know that? Because God clearly states that he will make all things new. So all things that we have that give us joy, fulfillment, peace, safety, security, richness, love, entertainment are going to all be made new. Food, right? Animals, 
our bodies, we will have resurrected bodies. That's one of the things that we have the most evidence for in scripture, pointing to a life without physical ailments or any sort of disability whatsoever, but perfect bodies and no fear of death because there will be no death and no fear of ever going back because once we're there, we are permanent, established as permanent residents of eternity on the new earth with not only Christ as King of King and Lord of Lords, but God himself coming down and dwelling among us, which was all a part of his original design and his original plan before sin entered the world. Now, what's the third misconception? The third misconception that so many Christians have, so many Christians struggle with, and this is somewhat of an unpopular truth, but my commitment to you throughout this whole series was to not water anything down, not try to exaggerate anything, just to give you the objective truth, the objective result of my research, and to point you to say, for me, the source of truth becomes the Bible once we hear the story of where the Bible comes from. And so the Bible is my source of truth. And so it's not my interpretation, right? I'm trying to deliver to you what God's word says directly because it's a lot to read through and sort through yourself. It's taken me decades to pull this all together. And this is one that honestly, some people struggle to understand. And a lot of times we struggle to even share this because it's harsh a little bit. It can come across as harsh. It can come across as a little bit stinging, as a little bit, I don't like that. But remember, God's goal is not to be divisive. God's goal is to be clear. It's up to us to choose which side of the fence we stand on. But God, just as a loving parent provides a safe place for their children to play by putting a fence around it, it's not to deny their kids freedom. It's to protect their children and to give them the things and the desires of their heart without opening them up to fear and danger and risk, right? So it's our choice about whether or not we want to believe his word and follow it and choose to obey his commands or it's our choice to deviate from them. And if we have deviated, we can repent and in a moment we can be saved. We're saved by Jesus. So we don't always like to hear and you might not like to hear what I'm about to say. And I'm again, it's not me saying it. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm not even the messenger. I'm, I'm just a modern day interpreter of the messengers who were the people who knew Jesus and were around during his life and the prophets that were before him. But I'm going to just share with you what scripture says and why, and it'll explain why this is a misconception. So part of it is people don't like to hear this part necessarily, but you really have nothing to be afraid of because it, on the new earth and in eternity, it won't really matter, which I'll explain what that means. But the other part of it is that this misconception, sometimes people misunderstand. And so I'm going to try to share with you what this truth is while making it clear so that you don't accidentally misinterpret what the whole point of God's story is. So we're going to look at that. So what is this other misconception that Christians and non-Christians often have about what God's word tells us to be true about the forthcoming eternal life? And that is that our inheritance will be different for all of us based on the way that we have lived this life. It's possible that our inheritance will be different 
in what we inherit in the afterlife will be different. So here's the part where it's really important you understand this and that I don't mislead you in any way and that we make sure this is crystal clear. Your entrance into heaven and thus your entrance into permanent residency on the new earth, the perfectly restored earth of where we will spend eternity, not in the clouds, but here on earth, enjoying the most magnificent parts of what the world has to offer now without any of the pain. Your entrance into that place is not based whatsoever on your deeds. You can neither be good enough to earn it nor can you be bad enough to be disallowed from entering it. As captured pretty well and accurately by the old phrase, good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people go to heaven. The the extension of that would be saying that good people don't end up on the new earth, forgiven people end up on the new earth. An even more literal expression would be to say that people who believe in Jesus go to heaven. People who don't believe in Jesus do not go to heaven. People who believe in Jesus end up in the new earth and have eternal peace and joy and entertainment and feasts and renewed bodies and no fear of death and can walk up to animals and play with animals and have companionship because none of them kill each other and they won't kill you. And there's all all of these beautiful things about joy and justice and peace. People who believe in Jesus get that entrance fee paid. It is an entrance fee, but it's an entrance fee that you are not capable of paying, that I am not capable of paying because we do not live or lead perfect lives. The entrance fee is Jesus's blood, Jesus's death, because sin is spiritual death. Sin is to be separated from God, which is to commit spiritual death. In order to erase that sin, it must be covered with another sacrifice, another death, which is why they used to sacrifice lambs in the Old Testament. But Jesus is the holy lamb of God, the permanent lamb, which is as the son of God, God incarnate himself, he comes, he dies, and through his blood is a final atonement, a final sacrifice, a final paying of our sin, a final paying for our debt. And if we believe in Jesus, the debt is paid and our entrance, our admission to heaven, and thus eternity on the new earth, living with Jesus in God's house, with God dwelling himself, dwelling on the new earth with us, is established. It has nothing to do with your deeds. Nothing. You could have lots of good deeds. You could be a philanthropist. You could be a good person. You could be a successful entrepreneur. You could be rich. You could be poor. You could be famous. You could be infamous. You could be unknown. You could live in total obscurity. You can be a Nobel Peace Prize. You can be on the Forbes 500 richest people, or you can be dirt broke and poor. None of that is what determines your admission to heaven. Even if you're good, but you don't believe in Jesus, the Bible says you're not going to heaven. That's not my rule, right? Don't shoot the messenger. That's just, remember what I said all the way back in the very first lesson, the Bible is clear on things. So you can choose to listen to all of this and not believe it. And I think that would be good for you because at least you'd be clear on what you don't believe. But the Bible does not mince words. There's not a lot of gray area on certain things. And this is one of them. It is not based on your deeds, whether or not you get into heaven. So your salvation is a Jesus issue. 
but your inheritance, meaning what you experience permanently in the afterlife, permanently in heaven and on the new earth, your inheritance is different. So salvation is available to all of us. We are equally unsuitable for the presence of God because of our sin. All of us, Romans says, we all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all of us equally miss the bar to get into heaven and and to thus be in eternity on the new earth with God. We all miss it. The only way to get there is Jesus. So when it comes to salvation, we are all equal. But when it comes to our inheritance, our inheritance is disproportionate. It says that what we inherit in the afterlife, once we get admitted, right? Once we get a ticket, think about it like this. We all can get a ticket to the Super Bowl, but we all have different seats, (laughs) right? Like we can all get a ticket to the game, but we all are going to have a different experience at the game. But all of us are going to love the experience, right? It's not like you get tickets to the Super Bowl and then you complain about your seats, That's not really what happens, at least not for most people, right? It's sort of like that going, everybody can get a ticket into the game. What's the ticket? The ticket is Jesus. It's not money. It's not power. It's not fame. It's not followers. It's not influence. It's not your good deeds and it's not your bad deeds. Jesus is the ticket into the game. However, where you get to sit to watch that game is going to be different. We're going to be sitting in different places, but all of us are going to love it because we know that there's nothing impure that enters heaven or eternal life. And so we know, we know that life is going, eternal life is good. There won't be comparison. There won't be shame, right? I won't feel shameful that I'm sitting in the last set, you know, the last row in the upper bleachers. I'm not going to feel shame. I'm not going to feel less than because I'm going to be in the presence of God. I've got a seat at the table. I've got a ticket to the game and it's amazing. And I never thought I would be there. And I can't imagine how majestic and glorious the whole experience is. But there will be some other people who are on the field, you know, who are on the sidelines, who are front row, who are on the 50 yard line. There will be some people who are in box seats, right? And that might be unpopular, but. I'm purporting and sharing with you, and I'm going to point you to scripture where it says, I see a pretty clear picture, and I think you might too, that says, even though our salvation is equal, our inheritance is disproportionate. Our inheritance is unequal, but we will all be happy. I love the way that Randy Alcorn describes it in his book, Heaven, which again, this whole question seven is basically a paraphrase of this book, which I cannot recommend highly enough that he describes it as we'll, all of us will have, we will have different size cups, but all of our cups will be full, right? The way I process it is we will all have a ticket to the Super Bowl. We'll all be there celebrating together, but some of us will be sitting in different parts of the stands. So it's good, but it's also worth knowing that what our inheritance looks like for eternity, which is permanent, is distinct and unique. So where do I draw that conclusion from? I draw that conclusion from scripture, right? From research. Now, first of all, the kingdom, which is also the garden of Eden or the paradise, 
there's different terms that are used sort of interchangeably throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is described as the inheritance for all of us. In Romans chapter eight, verse 17 through 18, it says, now, if we are children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs, H-E-I-R-S, heirs, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So all of us will dwell in the spirit of the Lord. All of us will have eternal safety, security, provision, peace, joy, justice. All of us will have redeemed bodies. All of us will be safe and get to explore the earth and animals and books and entertainment and dinner and feasts, right? All of us will get to do those things, which Paul is writing here in Romans. He says, those things don't even compare to our minor sufferings we experience now. So yeah, we have sufferings. Yeah, we have pain, but what's coming will be so worth it. So we have that inheritance, but and, and that inheritance is described also like Daniel chapter 12, verse 13 is described as for you, Daniel, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of your days, you will rise to receive your lauded inheritance. It's this idea of inheritance. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 and, and verse 46. If you put them together, it says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by the father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Then the righteous will go away to eternal life. What is that creation that they're talking about? That is earth. The earth is God's creation. It's part of God's, one of his most, it's his splendor on display. God is proud of the earth he created before sin came in. So we don't have a clear picture of what a perfect earth looks like because we live in sin. But God is proud of the original earth, which that there was before original sin. So that has been our inheritance since the creation of the world. It was the design. The original design was that we would be there and we would have experienced this long ago, that we would have never experienced the pain that we've had to experience. That was what God wanted. That was what God planned. That's the kingdom he prepared for you. But then sin came and took shape. We welcome it into the world. Then we create separation. That opens a place for the devil to live and do his work and to deceive us. And that leads to all the problems we have in the world today. And then Jesus comes and erases our sins. And then we get the ticket back into eternal life. So it's an inheritance that is so cool. The new earth is our inheritance. Revelation chapter 21, verse seven says, those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Again, not just a God, but a father. And we as children inherit this. This is all part of the, the narrative from the beginning of time, according to scripture. But so where do we get into going? Where do I come to you and say, but one thing you should know one thing you should know is that while your your admission to heaven and therefore eternity on the new earth is available for all of us, it's going to be disproportionate. Where do I get that from? Let me point you to the verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 
So that means that there will be a judgment and that what we receive will be somehow connected to what we've done while in the body, whether good or bad. So it's not that living a good life or a bad life doesn't matter. Those things don't matter when it mean when it, we talk about getting into heaven, but they do matter when it comes to establishing what your eternity will be like ultimately on the new earth. Thank you for listening to this special podcast series, Eternal Life, Seven Questions Every Intelligent Skeptic Should Ask About Jesus of Nazareth. Hopefully, you'll notice that I've tried to take great care in documenting and citing references so that you can go explore the sources yourself. If you would like a consolidated copy of all of these citations, including an organized listing of all of the Bible verses that I referenced throughout the whole series, please visit eternallifepodcast.com forward slash free, and I'll send it to you. Again, to grab that free resource, just head over to eternallifepodcast.com forward slash free. Enjoy. It says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. And then it goes on to describe whether you're a slave or you're a free man, whatever good you do here on this earth is what you will be rewarded for. That's important. In Revelations chapter 2, verse 23, it says, I will strike her, which he's referring to Jezebel, which is this false prophet, which is part of the end times, which have not yet happened. And she misleads people into sexual immorality and idolatry. This is supposed, this is to come, right? There is some false prophet, prophet, I guess, called Jezebel. So I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. Here it comes. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So God searches our heart and minds which is scary to me because I am, I've had some impure thoughts, right? I've had impure feelings. So God is going to be aware of those. Thankfully, I'm so grateful for Jesus being tortured on a cross because his blood is going to cover my gap there for getting in. But what happens after that somehow is going to be affected by this. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13 says this, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this. Blessed are the dead who dies in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. So what that just means is that our deeds on earth aren't forgotten in heaven, that there is some connection exactly what, I don't know exactly what, but there are places specifically that even though our salvation is just a matter of Jesus, our inheritance has something to do with how we live our lives. That's Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. It says that our deeds will follow us. Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. Here's what it says. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades, which is hell. Hell gave up the dead that were in them. 
and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So what does this mean? What does this tell us? This tells us that our deeds while we are alive here on earth are recorded. They are recorded apparently in books, which I take to mean literally some type of book or books. And so basically, whether they're actual books like we know them or some other type of heavenly book, it says they're recorded. They're documented, right? There's like this ledger of what we've done. And I go, oh gosh, that's pretty scary for me, right? If you know everything I've done, if you know every bad thought I've ever had, every bad feeling I ever have felt, every bad thing I've ever done, right? I go, oh gosh, it's going to be recorded, right? And so I'm going to stand on judgment in front of a judge and they're going to see all of that written in a book. And if my rap sheet isn't clean, then I deserve death. I deserve to be separated from God. I have chosen sin. And so I have chosen to be separate from God. I have chosen a spiritual death. But next to it is this other book, the book of life, which it says is open. What's the book of life? The book of life is recorded in it, the names of all the people who believe in Jesus. So one of the deeds that we live in this life that is recorded is whether or not we have confessed with our mouth that we believe in our heart and that we've experienced baptism. If we have done those things, it says our name will forever be recorded in the book of life. So even if I confess with my mouth, believe in my heart and get baptized that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, that his blood, that he's the son of God and his blood is strong enough to cover my sin and that wipes my rap sheet clean, But then I continue to sin after, which has happened in my case. And let's face it, I still struggle with it as I've described to you earlier in this series. Even if that were to happen, it says that my name is recorded permanently in the book of life. So does that mean that there will be some judgment day where these books are open, one that shows all of my deeds and one that shows all of the names of people who have accepted Jesus? Well, that's what it says right? That's what it says. Like, again, I don't know for sure exactly what that means. That part hasn't happened. That's the part of the story we don't know yet, but that's what it says. So I go, well, it's either exactly what it says or some other heavenly representation of that. Either way, it points to me being held accountable for what I have done on earth but not in a way of, will I go to heaven and the new earth or will I go to hell? That is just a discussion of whether or not I believe in Jesus. And that is recorded directly in the book of life. But beyond that, there is a listing of my deeds. They are recorded, which makes sense. God is God. He knows all, right? He knows what I've done, what I think, and I will be accountable for that. So thank God for Jesus. (laughs) That's why he sent Jesus. He knew very well that we were going to fall short. So he took care of that part. But then there's a part that's kind of still left that's open to us to choose with how we live. Where else do we see this? Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. This is right at the end, end, end of the Bible. It's not the very last line, but close to it, right? It says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. 
and I will give to each person according to what they have done. So he's saying, my reward is with me. What is my reward? My reward is my presence with you, my holy city returning to the new earth, my restoration of the earth that I created long ago that we were supposed to be living together the whole time. We were supposed to be roommates this whole time, but then you went off and sinned. And so we got separated, but I'm bringing it back because of my son, Jesus, who I sent to take care of all this so that we could be reconciled. My reward is with me and... I will give to each person according to what they have done. That sounds pretty clear that we all get the reward of the new earth, but each person is given according to what they have done. That seems to be pretty clear that there will be something different. In Luke chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And to me, that is representative of the choice that you have to make here of, do I believe all of this or do I not? If you choose not to believe this, that's your prerogative. But by doing that, you are choosing to exalt yourself. You're choosing to exalt your own ideas, your own beliefs, your own convictions, your own thoughts about how you should live, about what happens in eternity. And uh, again, that is, that's your prerogative. Our God says that he gives you that choice. You may not believe in our God, and so you don't care what our God has to say. That's your choice. But be advised that that's a permanent choice according to what our God says, and that our God says you will be humbled, okay? And those who humble themselves, meaning those of us who surrender, those of us who say, I don't know what's best for my life. I don't have life figured out. I'm not perfect. I screw up. I need help. I need wisdom. So I read the Bible. I I need guidance. So I pray and talk to God. I need support. So I surround myself with fellowship of other believers. I need accountability. So I go to church and Bible study. I need answers. So I read the word of God. I need help. And most of all, I need something bigger than me to pay for the mistakes that I've made. That's us who humble ourselves will be exalted. Meaning, I guess, we get to come along for the ride. So it also might mean that there's a difference of what even those of us who go into eternity, what we experience. Jesus also says, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's where heaven is. That points to a difference. There's something different in eternity. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So who's that? That's Jesus talking while Jesus is still alive as on earth as an earthly man, God incarnate right? He's talking to his friends, the disciples. And he is saying, if you become persecuted for talking about me, that's unfair, right? But don't worry, right? Bless, you will be insulted. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say nasty things about you because of me. This happens, by the way. I, I relate with this one, okay? Go look up, go look up Rory Vaden TED Talk. You will see that I gave a TED Talk in 2015 called How to Multiply Time. 
That TED talk is based on my second book, Procrastinating on Purpose, Five Permissions to Multiply Time. Remember in all this, right? I'm not a pastor, never went to seminary. I don't run a church. I don't run a nonprofit. I'm not asking you for money or anything else. I'm just laying all this out for my sons and thought some of you might want to come along for the ride. But I am a secular, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a businessman. I teach people how to be successful in worldly ways, right? And hopefully more, but but I teach business. So I write books and speak on business things. And one of the things that I did was I created a methodology called How to Multiply Time, which is five techniques, five strategies for how, if you feel busy and overwhelmed, how you can live with more margin and peace and get more done, how you can be more productive. That talk went viral. People loved what I had to share. We put it in a book, right? We've sold a lot of copies of that book, Procrastinating on Purpose. But if you read the comments, you'll see that most of the comments are really, really positive. However, if you look closely, you will see there's a lot of negative comments. The vast majority of the negative comments I've received pertain to a Bible verse that I mentioned at the end, which is Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, which is that God's first command to all of humanity is not have no other gods before me. It's not love your neighbor as yourself. His first command that he delivers to humanity is be fruitful and multiply. And I make one small casual reference to scripture that's 60 seconds. And I catch a lot of hate for that. I catch a lot of flack for that. Same thing if you go to Amazon, go to Amazon and look up Take the Stairs, okay? So this is my secular business book, Take the Stairs. It's not about faith. It's a book about the psychology of overcoming procrastination and increasing self-discipline. Most of the reviews are wildly positive. People love it. They say it's encouraging, inspiring, clarifying, insightful, whatever. But there's a lot of hate on there. But what's the number one critique, the number one feedback that I get is people saying, this sounds like a sermon. I wish there weren't so many Bible verses. I catch flack for this. So I relate here to this verse in Matthew chapter five, verse 11, when he says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, right? I'm not being nasty to these people. I'm not being mean to these people. I'm not trying to hurt these people. I'm trying to help these people. But simply because I mention a few Bible verses here and there, people say all kinds of evil against me. I mentioned that in all the way back in the in lesson one of this series in question one, I said, I have no reason to produce this series for the world, right? The reason I'm doing this is for my sons. It's actually going to be a great risk to my business, a great risk to my life since I'm not a pastor to put this out there. Why is it risky to me? Because some of the people who pay me money to hire me to come in and speak, some of the celebrities who we coach on their personal brand, some of the entrepreneurs and small business owners that our business depends on, some of them may be upset that I have shared this with the world. I'm likely, based on what's happened with my TED Talk and my books, I'm very likely to catch flack. I'm very likely to not get hired. I said I'm willing to take the risk because of what I think is at stake because I'm convinced of what my own research has taught me, which is that my skepticism that I've had for my life has been overcome by evidence and that I believe that people who struggle from a lack of faith don't struggle really from a lack of faith as they struggle from a lack of research. 
And so I have done that research to the best of my ability in the most objective sense. And I have put it together. And I thought, in addition to sharing it with my sons, I'll put it out there for the world. But I'm not planning on being a a pastor or even a Christian teacher or speaking at Christian conferences. That's not a part of my plan. I mean, who knows what God's plan is, but that's not a part of my plan. I'm a secular business teacher and I study the psychology of influence and I study how do we motivate ourselves and other people to take action. But I get people saying falsely all kinds of evil against me just because I mention a few Bible verses here and there in my business work. I never have done anything like this and I'm a little bit nervous about it. (laughs) I'm a little bit nervous about what's going to happen to our family and to our business because I could lose friends, right? I have friends. Some of my best friends are not believers. Some of my best friends that I love dearly don't believe all this stuff. They have completely different faiths, completely different beliefs. I mean, I'm talking some of my best friends, best friends, three specifically I can think of who, four actually, four of my best friends, four of the people I'm closest to do not believe in Christ as Messiah at the time of this recording. That means there's a chance that through doing all of this and then listening to parts of this or whatever, I could potentially lose four of my best friends who I love, right? The fact that they don't believe what I believe doesn't change that I don't love them and love hanging out with them and think they're a riot and learn so much from them and respect them so much. I'm afraid of losing them. We could lose customers. We could lose employees. We could, I'm sure we're going to have hateful comments wherever this ends up being posted. But this matters so much. I'm so convicted now, all right? I've gone from skeptic to super believer. Why? Because of evidence, all of the evidence which I've laid out here. And so I'm willing to take people saying all kinds of evil against me. And I've, you know, it's already happening. So I might as well put this out there, right? But the Bible says right here, rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. Okay, that's not really why I'm doing it, but that would be awesome, right? That'd be awesome to like, maybe that works in my favor against all the all the sin I've made and all the crap I've screwed up and all the people I've wronged. So maybe this will make up for some of that. If it does, awesome. Not really the objective, but that's what this points to is that it says you'll be rewarded when you are persecuted for speaking in my name, which also is a warning, right? Jesus is saying like, be ready. This world is not going to always love it when you say the name Jesus. The name of Jesus has power. The word of God has power. And people, just by saying the name or citing a verse, it has power. People respond to it. Some people are drawn to it. Some people are repelled by it. And they have not yet repented towards it. And so because of that, there are worldly consequences that may be upon us. But Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of that. If anything negative should happen, you'll be rewarded for it in heaven. So whether or not that's true, maybe could work out in my favor because I have a lot to cover, a lot of mistakes to cover for. I'm so honored that you are here. And I really hope that this Eternal Life podcast series is helpful to you and your loved ones. On that note, can I ask a quick favor? If you feel like it's appropriate, would you mind leaving me a rating and review on whatever platform it is that you use to listen to this show? That 
really helps get the word out about this so that we can reach more people with this information. And it helps people decide if this is something they should really take the time to get into. Relatedly, I also want to encourage you to share this episode or this entire series with anyone who you think might enjoy it. Obviously, it's totally free, but it's our prayer that God would use this series to reach a lot of people because we know there's a lot of people out there who struggle with doubt and skepticism, and I know what that's like. And I also know what it's like to experience the deep peace and fulfillment that comes from having completed all of this research. So if you don't mind, just visit the main listing of this series in whatever app you're using to listen to it and leave us a rating and review, and then just hit the share button and send this out to anyone in your life who you think might benefit from it. Thanks so much. And then in Matthew chapter 25, verse 23, Jesus is talking and they're sharing this story. And he says, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Well done, good and faithful servant. So why did I give up alcohol? Why did I stop having sex before I was married? Why have I tried to do the things that scripture says? Because my vision changed. My vision changed from living this life and getting the most, being a lover of pleasure, to use a biblical term. I used to be a lover of pleasure of this life, right? But through evidence and research, I came to believe that all of this is true. And once I came to believe that all of this was true, my time horizon, my perspective extended from this lifetime to eternal life. And as my perspective elongated, from a hundred years, 80 to a hundred years of however long I'll be here on this earth. And it extended from that to eternity. In the context of that shift, I started to make different decisions. I started to make different choices. I started to make different behaviors. And I hope through the power of God and the power of Christ in me and the Holy Spirit that lives in me, according to the word, I hope that I have become a person of different character. I hope I'm no longer who I once was. I sure feel different. I sure feel like a new creation. I sure feel like I've been forgiven. I sure feel free from the shackles of guilt and shame and all the wrong things I've done, which is why I'm not afraid to admit them because that's the story of Jesus, that being a Christian has nothing to do with being perfect. It's the opposite. Being a Christian has everything to do with admitting you're not perfect, right? Being Christian doesn't mean thinking you can you can live a perfect life, it means openly admitting and surrendering to the idea that there's no way you're going to ever even come close. And in that admittance, in that surrender, in that objectivity, in that self-awareness, you recognize the gap and the need and the space for Jesus of Nazareth to be your savior, to cover your gap, to pay for your sins, to erase your mistakes so that you can be in the presence of God. And then out of gratitude for this ticket to the Super Bowl, right? For this ticket to life 
on the new earth to this permanent invitation to sit at the table with the God of the universe and to live in his house of protection and abundance and provision and peace and justice and adventure and entertainment and love and out of gratitude for a ticket to that Super Bowl for an invitation to sit at that table for a room in his home for a place on this earth once it's restored as the new earth out of gratitude for that i go i want to follow your ways i want to live a life of sanctification i know i can't be perfect i haven't been perfect and i know i won't be perfect but i love you and i'm grateful for you and out of that i want to live better i want to do better i want to love my brothers and sisters in christ better i want to love strangers better I want to care less about money and more about you. I want to give to the needy. I want to take care of the widows and the orphan. I want to spend word, spend my time in the word of God. I want to spend time praying and talk to you. I want to invite you into all moments of my life. I want to, as 1 Thessalonians says, I want to rejoice always and to be grateful in every moment, celebrating what you've done for me. And out of that conviction and passion, I want to share with the rest of the world the transformation that you have done in my life so that they can experience it too, so that they can be reunited with their loved ones. And so that one day in the new earth, we can jump off of a waterfall without fearing death and land on the wings of a pterodactyl and soar up into the sky and fall off down into the ocean and never be feared of being injured and then go to dinner that night and hear the stories about the life they lived on this current earth and the stories of the people who knew Jesus and the stories of Jesus himself and to meet Noah and to hear that all of the stories of the prophets who are mentioned and to meet King David and say, oh my gosh, what were you thinking with Bathsheba? Why did you do that? And what was it like staring down the eyes of Goliath, this giant, this huge man when you were just a child and what gave you the strength to do that? And how did you believe? And where did you write the Psalms? And what time of the morning was it? Or what time of the day? And to have the richness of music and to have all of my friends who have had disabilities in their life restored, returned, recovered, to be reunited with my lost loved ones, with potentially with pets, potentially with dinosaurs, to live this life where the lion le lays next to the lamb and they are led by a child, right? I believe in all of it. And I say, because of it, I want to share it with the world. I want to tell you about it because I want to see you there. I want to meet you there. And in the context of an eternal life where there is no clock, I want to have the time to get to know you, to hear your story, to fall in love with you the way that God loves you. I want to hear about your sins. I want to hear about your mistakes. I want to hear about your wild living. And I want to hear the story about how God erased all of it for you and what it was that made you believe and what it was that helped you find him and who it was in your life and what book you read and what songs you loved. And I want to sing next to you. And I want to do it with God sitting next to us. And I want to do it next to my wife. And I want my sons, Jasper and Liam, to be there with us. And I want the people that you love to be there. And I want you to be reunited with the people that you've lost 
that were believers in Christ, that maybe you never even knew they believed in Christ because they were afraid to tell you because they didn't want to risk alienating you. They didn't want to offend you, but you'll, you'll be in heaven and on the new earth and you'll see somebody to go, I had no idea you were a believer. That's what I want. And so while our inheritance possibly, potentially is different in terms of the size of our cup or where we're seated at the game, our inheritance ultimately for all of us, it is the same. It's the same. We'll all be fulfilled. We will all have eternal safety and security. But it's important that you make this decision now about what you believe while you are still awake. Because once you fall asleep, you don't get another chance. And something that is both the scariest thought and the most inspiring thought, perhaps, that I've ever heard, and it's the same thought, is that for those people who will end up choosing to run away from God, and for those people who will end up, as a result of that, choosing to go to hell, this current life, this current earth, This current world is the closest that they're ever going to be to heaven. What they're experiencing now is as good as it's ever going to get. And hell is not a party. It's not a joke. The Bible uses phrases that clearly describe this as a place that I don't think you want to go. And so it only gets worse from here. And that's terrifying. But for those of us who are going to heaven, this current life, This current world is the closest that we will ever be to hell. We look around and we can tell that the world is broken. Our bodies are broken. There's, There's sadness. There's injustice. There's things that happen that should not be so. And we see it because we're children of God. And we feel it because we know that while we see evidence of God in the beauty of nature and in the beauty of our own bodies and in the beauty of our relationships... And while we see evidence of God in the logical, academic, rational, historical, and archaeological reasons that we have explored in this series, we also see evidence that this world is broken and hurting and painful. And we know that people shouldn't have to live in addiction or in torment or as slaves or prisoners, or that they shouldn't have to be blind and not see. They shouldn't have to be deaf and not hear. They should be able to run and jump and leap and swim, and they should be able to experience music and sports and art and food, and they shouldn't die young, and they shouldn't be led astray by thinking that just because they've been a sinner that they're going to be a sinner forever. It shouldn't be so that just because we've made mistakes that we think we're a loser, or just because someone hit us or hurt us or took advantage of us, that we don't deserve a life of happiness and joy. And the only reason we would think that is because we haven't done our research. We shouldn't be listening to the voices of this world, the people who errantly told us that we were we were dumb or that we were stupid or that we were there was something wrong with us. We should listen to the God of the universe who says, I love you. I'm chasing you. I forgive you. I've made a way for you. I sent my son to take care of all of it for you. It doesn't matter if you are whispering, breathing, murderous threats. I can make you one of the most prominent Christians with one of the best seats in the house at the Super Bowl like he did for Saul who became Paul. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus erases it and it's available to all of us. 
It doesn't matter our age, our race, our ethnicity, our color. It doesn't matter our sexual orientation. It doesn't matter our sexual sin. All that it means is that we acknowledge that there is shortcomings in our life and that through the covering of Jesus, we are forgiven. And there's also a truth that our actions do matter and that how we choose to live out the remainder of our days will have a consequence eternally. But even then, we won't have shame and we won't have doubt and we won't have pain and we won't have guilt and we we won't have insecurity and we won't have fear and we won't have worry because the Bible clearly states nothing impure shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And there's a story in the Bible about Lazarus, who is one of Jesus's friends. And this happens while Jesus is still alive. And Jesus is alive and some of his friends come to tell him that Lazarus, his friend, is sick and dying. And they ask Jesus to come to heal him. And Jesus says, no, there's something in Jesus or he's led somehow by the spirit or God talks to him that says it's, it's not time to go. And so Jesus lets his friend die. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus wept. That tells us that Jesus experienced the pain of this world. Jesus knows what sorrow is like. He knows what torture is like. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. But the reason why Jesus was crying might be different than we always think. We don't know for sure why Jesus was crying. Of course, it's possible that the reason that Jesus was crying was the same reason you or I would cry, was because he lost his friend. But in the context of understanding everything that you now understand, Jesus would have no real reason to cry necessarily. He could have done it because he was sad that his friend in the world was gone. But Jesus probably knew he could bring him back to life. So if Jesus knew he had power over death, if Jesus knew God could bring his friend back to life, because if Jesus was afraid that he couldn't bring his friend back to life, then Jesus likely would have gone right away to heal his friend while his friend was still alive. But Jesus chose not to. Jesus allowed his friend to die. That likely means that Jesus knew that he was going to see his friend again. He knew that he was going to bring Lazarus back for the dead, or he at least knew that he would be reunited with Lazarus in heaven and on the new earth sooner or later. So if Jesus knew that he eventually was going to be reunited with Lazarus, then why did he cry? If he knew that Lazarus was going to heaven, if he knew Lazarus was going to be with the Father, if he knew Lazarus was going to eventually be in the new earth, then why did he cry? And then it finally made sense about a year ago when I started studying heaven that perhaps the, the reason that Jesus wept over Lazarus dying was not because he was afraid of losing his friend. He knew he was going to bring his friend back. He knew he was going to be reunited with his friend. And that's the reason why he cried, because he knew his friend Lazarus was going to experience the goodness of heaven. He knew his friend Lazarus was going to experience the opportunity to dwell directly in God's house. He knew that Lazarus was going to the intermediate heaven. He knew that Lazarus was going to experience a place where there's no pain, there's no death, there's no crying, there's no mourning. He knew that Lazarus was going to be in a place where provision and entertainment and restoration and forgiveness and love and joy and celebration. He knew that Lazarus was going to get to experience 
experience God's original design for all of humanity. And yet Jesus knew he was going to have to bring him back from that. Jesus knew that he was going to have to pull Lazarus out of heaven. He knew that he was going to have to pull Lazarus out of death. Why did he have to do that? So that God would get the glory, so that it would be evident to everybody who lived that they would witness the resurrection, not just of Jesus, but the resurrection of an ordinary man named Lazarus, who was not a deity. He was just Jesus's friend. And they would witness Jesus's power over death while Jesus was still alive. And that was important because Jesus was demonstrating while he was alive that God has power over death, just like he demonstrated through his own resurrection that he had power over death. But what does that mean? That means that Lazarus is the innocent bystander of this situation, that Lazarus is one of the only people in all of human history that experiences heaven, gets the taste of heaven, gets to feel the perfection of heaven, the deep security, the profound fulfillment, the the eternal peace that transcends all understanding. Lazarus gets a taste of that and Jesus has to pull him back. And that is a more rational explanation for why Jesus wept. It's the same reason why Jesus was willing to die a death on a cross. He knew what awaited him. He wasn't looking forward to death on a cross. He asked God to take it away, but he surrendered to God's will. But he was willing to do it because he knew what was on the other side. He had already been there and he knows what awaits for us. And he knows that it was worth it. He knew that it was worth it to give his own life so that we could all experience it. And so we know that it's worth it to share what this story is, not just a story, but the history, the logic, the truth, logically and emotionally, the truth of what all of this means, that there is a timeline of evidence of thousands of years or several hundred years, at least, that we can verify that defy the odds of math and science itself that say all of this is true. And they tell us that Jesus has made a way. He has made a way for us to overcome our sin, to overcome death, not only physical death in the body, but spiritual death as the separation from God. That spiritual death is the separation from God's love. And if you're running in your life away from God, you probably are experiencing some of what that death feels like. All you have to do is repent, to turn around, to run the opposite direction, to return home to know that you're welcome, that God welcomes his son back and his daughter back. No matter what you've done, no matter what someone has done to you, you're invited and you're welcome home. It's a peace that you get to experience here on earth while your earthly body is still alive, but something far greater and more glamorous and magical and divine for eternity. That you, through all of this, can come to know and accept and be secure in a confident, eternal life. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eternal Life, seven questions every intelligent skeptic should ask about Jesus of Nazareth. 
As I've mentioned a few times, I'm not a pastor or leader of any religious organization of any kind. But if you are curious to get to know a bit more about me and the professional work that I do as an author, strategist, and speaker, you can head over to RoryVadenBlog.com. There you will get access to lots of free training resources for business people. I co-host a business podcast also with my wife and business partner, AJ, and we have a personal brand strategy firm that we run together. And I also release new free trainings every week on the psychology of growing your influence, all of which you can learn more about at RoryVadenBlog.com. I'll see you next time.